0: and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, a podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR and this week we're going to think very big. We're going to talk about the current crisis of the global order and how to build a world safe for democracies or democracy and to help us go into this enormous topic, I'm very happy to welcome John Eikenbury, who is the Albert G. Milbank Professor of International Affairs at Princeton University and author of the recently published book, A World Safe for Democracy, Liberal Internationalism and the Crises of Global Order. Thank you very much, John, for joining.
1: Thank you, Mark. It's great to be here.
0: Let me start congratulating you on this new book, which has already got quite a lot of critical acclaim from various sides. I imagine it must have been quite a difficult book to write because you're one of the high priests of liberal internationalism, and it's not been a great few
1: years for liberal internationalism. Well, I felt like a high priest that might be officiating at a burial service, and indeed that's In some ways, the way the project started, giving lectures, literally the the week after Trump was elected in November 2016, I gave lectures at the University of Virginia, and it was a very subdued crowd, shall we say. But the focus then and in the book is really, what can we say about the 200-year career of this set of ideas and projects, and how can we look into the past and find usable lessons and insights that can allow us to move forward, to rebuild and reclaim?
0: So that's one of the, the sort of places which I'd like to start on is this, this question about, cause you, as you said, you wrote it in quite a dark time, but you end in a hopeful way. You, you think that this is still a project with some life in it. And shortly after the book came out, a different American president was elected who's told us that America is back, ready to lead the world again. Maybe you could. Talk a bit through both some of the things that have changed about your own thinking, but why you end in such an optimistic place, given what we've had to live through in recent times.
1: Well, I I do want to say that the book is not a book that could have been written after 1989 or in in the 90s. It's a darker book than that. It's a more sober, cautious, world-weary look at the long tradition of liberal internationalism with an idea that... It still has a future, but that it has to be reimagined and redefended and reorganized in various ways. And indeed, what I find out in looking back in this 200-year story, which It's really a story of the rise of liberal democracies after the age of democratic revolutions and the repeated efforts over the 19th and 20th centuries to build an order that's congenial with the project of liberal democracy, broadly speaking, that allows for an open system, a rule-based open system. And across that 200-year period, I I suggest that the post-Cold War period, the period of triumphalism, when it seemed like nothing else was on the horizon as a challenge to liberal democracy that that is the anomaly, that the longer 200-year story is one of contestation, near-run things, agonistic struggles over types of polities, the the near-death experience of liberal democracies in the 1930s and 40s. In some ways, that is the story that I focus on the, the period when liberals and liberal internationalists picked up the pieces after great catastrophes, the world wars, of course, the great depression and how they turn things around. And it's, it's that story that I tell that gives me some optimism that it's, we've done it before. Think of the generation of 1945 that in their own lifetime saw the great depression, the rise of total war, the rise of totalitarianism, fascism, the Holocaust, and the dropping of the atomic bomb. That was one generation's experience with international order. And yet, thinkers and activists and officials and diplomats uh, across the world-weary liberal democratic world picked pieces up and reimagined open democratic societies, indeed more progressive ones. That was the era when social democracy was brought forth across the industrial world. So it's a kind of optimism of a kind of competitive effort to to, to rebuild and reclaim. So you, you in the book
0: talk about the, I suppose, different challenges that we're facing now. And the pandemic is obviously an important part of the backdrop of where we are at the moment. And you, you have described the pandemic as the poster child of the problems of modernity. Can you explain a bit more about what you mean by
1: that? Yeah, one of the hallmarks of liberal internationalism as a, as a way of thinking and acting in the world, one of the great traditions that sits alongside realism and maybe Marxism or post-colonialism is that it sees the project of international relations as coping with the problems of modernity the problems of the industrial revolution the mobilization of societies that follows from science and technology and the continuing revolutions of the modern era and that no other world view really focuses on that set of problems. Realism focuses on what I call the problems of anarchy. That's really great power relations, balance of power. This is really, how do we deal with our mutual vulnerabilities to modernity? And of course, that in the grandest sense, that means how do we both capture the the upside of modernity, the great advances that can come from harnessing science and technology and, and our common efforts at development but how do we hard against the catastrophes? And so that's in some sense what the liberal project is. It's a, living in a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde world where there's great promise, but also great peril. And how do we organize our cooperative spheres internationally to, to cope with those problems? Today, the great horsemen of the apocalypse, there are three of them, really. One is a pandemic disease The second one is global warming. And the third one is nuclear, biological, and chemical weapons, WMD proliferation. Those are the big three developments of our age that could conceivably truly destroy human civilization. And so what the task of our countries together are collectively is to to cope with those problems, to manage more prosaically the problems of economic security and environmental interdependence
0: so obviously that's the big hope of the liberal international project that we can have an order which allows us to solve those problems which cut across frontiers the early days of the pandemic showed a lot of the opposite happening with people weaponizing the links that bound us together whether it was the sort of economic links which builds on a decade or so of, of people using sanctions and tariffs and trade wars and tech wars in different ways to inflict pain on each other and cyber warfare but even the the kind of supply of medical equipment Got weaponized in the early stages of the crisis, as well as the, the running of international institutions like the World Health Organization. Why do you think that it's going to be likely that we will be able to get out of a sort of zero-sum, realist, great power competition framework into one which is about delivering global public goods and solving these problems?
1: Well, that's a great question, and I I don't think there's anything built into human society that ensures that we will. I think it's it's likely to be a struggle, and as you say, we've seen the forces of history move in the opposite direction, that the pandemic has unleashed greater nationalism. We're probably going to see more geopolitics over the vaccine uh, as a kind of emblem of that zero-sum competition, even though we all know that we can't succeed without each of us doing better. And indeed, that's the underlying insight. It's not an insurance policy that we can do things, but it's the insight that seems so clear in the context of the pandemic that you can't solve your problems alone, that you're only as safe as the weakest link, the weakest public health system. The viruses don't have passports. There is an intrinsic global quality to the problem and so even self-interested, selfish states that, that simply want to be by themselves and, and be safe can't do so alone. And so, that again, that doesn't itself activate a political movement of, for cooperation. But I think my greatest hope is that we've seen the alternative. It's kind of like the dialectics of history. We've seen, particularly with the Trump years, an attempt to go the opposite direction. OK, let's try a different experiment. Everyone for himself, America first and everybody else first. And we've come to the edge of the abyss and we've looked down and what we see, we don't like. No one is better off. We're all weaker. We're all less healthy. So I think there's an opportunity here for not just the old guard, which would be the Anglo-American leaders, our countries that have done it before and they can do it again, but new generation of leaders using slightly different tools informal multilateral tools, harnessing new coalitions of state and non-state actors. There's a lot of energy I have found out there in the world at the middle power level, Australia and Canada, and South Korea, the Alliance for Multilateralism that has emerged as a kind of informal diplomatic alignment. So I think we're not there yet, but I, I think the underlying imperatives are so starkly posed by 2020 that there will be a galvanization perhaps with the help of Biden. I think he he gets this that we've got to reimagine and rebuild the international order or we're all in trouble.
0: So looking forward to talking more about Biden later on. It's very interesting discussion about how your ideas might feed into a into a Biden foreign policy vision, but before we do that, maybe I can sort of probe a bit more What about what you think the crisis of international order is. I've been wondering a lot recently about whether... We've been asking the wrong question. One of your phrase um, that the international order is easy to join and, and difficult to overturn. And that was very much the fear which people had in the in the 90s and in the early years of, of this century, that if we were not able to find ways of integrating China and India and others as responsible stakeholders in this order, that they would overthrow it and that we would end up losing a lot of the advances of the, of the post-war and post-Cold War era. With hindsight, though, I wonder if we were looking at the wrong kind of threat. I mean, I think to paraphrase you a little bit well well not sorry, not to paraphrase you, but to to come up with a slightly different way of formulating it. I'm starting to wonder if the the big problem with the order it was not that it was going to ever get overturned because the Russians and the Chinese and others were all very happy to join our institutions without signing up to the the values which underpin them, but at the same time to develop in parallel their own institutions, whether it was the BRICS or the Belt and Road Initiative or other kinds of parallel initiatives which are not through these institutions. I wonder if, in fact, what we've found out is that the liberal international order is, is very easy to hijack and intercept and very difficult to defend. And that what we're seeing now is, in fact, a problem that we've opened this order up and it's being perverted both from you know the outside with powers like russia and china and uh, modi's india and erdogan's turkey taking over these institutions and and making them much less liberal whether it's nato or the united nations or the imf or the, the world bank But also that faced with that, we found it very difficult to preserve what was liberal about them, both because of domestic challenges. And you've written a lot in your book about some of the domestic challenges, you know, of which Trump was a a symptom as well as a cause. What do you make of that? Do you think we were looking
1: in the wrong place? Well, I like your phrase and I think it captures some of what's happened. And I, I have become a little bit less Uh, sanguine about the course of integration of non-liberal states into this order. And and indeed, the argument at the end of my book really is that uh, the crisis of liberal international order is a crisis, well, first of all, of success. That is to say, there has been a success of spreading the broad involvement Participation of states outward into the world after the Cold War ended. And I do think that movement to open it up and invite states in was almost inevitable. It's in the DNA of, of liberalism, liberal internationalism, of a, a kind of expanding inclusiveness. Multilateral institutions have a principle of inclusion. I've argued that the liberal order has kind of is like a docking station in space where any kind of a vehicle can, can find a kind of universal port that can attach to the order. So there is a kind of logic of expansion. And this was, of course, at the end of the Cold War when Russia was enfeebled and, and China had yet to embark on its three decades of double-digit growth. So I think we didn't have really an option of saying, no, China, you're not liberal enough. Come back when you are. I think we had to play the liberal bet. It didn't work out as we thought. But this is where I would agree with you that in some sense, what's lost, what's been lost during the moment when we thought we were winning, what we lost was the sense of the order as a club, as a community of states that in being inside of this liberal order, you are buying into a suite of responsibilities and rights and obligations And a kind of narrative and an identity to be inside would be to be in a mutual aid society sort of thing where you would get access to other states, international institutions would help you manage your affairs, and you would have security, of course, through the alliances. That inside of the bipolar Cold War system became the outside order after the Cold War ended, and that was the beginning of the breakdown. So countries like China could join, kind of. And so the order became much less of a club and more like, a, as I say in the book, like a shopping mall or like a public utility where states like China could agree to be in part of it, but not other parts of it. They didn't have to buy into the whole narrative or into the suite of responsibilities. And so it's been kind of picked apart. And as you say, China has kind of surprised us. We thought five years ago, if you and I were talking now, we would be saying, you know, China is illiberal, increasingly so, and It looks like it wants to build a parallel order, as you said, but in some ways, what is interesting is that they are working inside institutions from the WHO, of course, the United Nations and other institutions to tilt it in a illiberal direction to kind of subvert the more liberal democratic values, human rights in that direction. And so I think you're right. For me, that means there's a real clarity that's increasingly in view that there are at least two different visions of international order on tap. And China's more explicit ideological challenge to liberal modernity offers those who have defended the liberal order a chance to, to become more serious about what it means to manage and defend that order. The stakes seem to be higher than they were five years ago. And so that makes me think that we will be talking more and more going forward about building alignments and restructuring and what I would argue a kind of club of democracies to help generate more ballast, to create a kind of, to maintain a kind of critical mass of democracies. Because in a world where that critical mass is lost, I do think kind of an anarchic Westphalian order where illiberal states stomp across the international landscape like great dinosaurs, will be a very frightening world for constitutional republics and polities that you and I want to live in.
0: So maybe that provides a link to the thing which would be good to talk about now, which, which is Biden and and. Uh, American foreign policy today. There was an article in Foreign Policy where a senior member of the incoming Biden team speaking on background, so I'm not sure who it was, but anyway, said that reinventing (laughs) liberal internationalism along the lines you recommend will be at the forefront of their efforts. What role do you think the US needs to play in order for your vision to become a reality? It sounds like what you're suggesting is that rather than having, you know, if we take the reinvention of liberal international order it should be a bit less international and a bit more liberal. Rather than having a kind of universal order, we, we should go back to more of a club of democracies, which does seem to be some of the thrust of recent pronouncements from from the Biden team.
1: Well, I do think we need to do both. We need to strengthen the coalition Because we do want to, as a coalition, fight for things like human rights and to work on technology platforms to make sure that they are user-friendly to democracies and open societies. Artificial intelligence, revolutions in technology are going to make it important that democracies hang together on these kind of prosaic issues of standards and practices for media and for information flows and so forth. But yes, I think the Biden team gets it. I think intuitively they are internationalists to the bone. I think there isn't going to be a problem of, trying to make the case to Biden and his team that the U.S. needs to return to a kind of internationalist-oriented grand strategy. I think those intellectual arguments don't have to be made, but it's really the the question of, okay, how do we do that? How do we bring an America that itself is still divided and a world that is increasingly skeptical of the United States? Can you trust the United States, having lived through Trump? I do think the grand strategy needs to be organized around building coalitions and alignments of, of common interests and values. That's what—that's the, the liberal democratic community component. I think it also means, secondly, it means slightly reframing what we mean by interdependence. Uh, globalization is not what we should be defending. We should be defending pragmatic intergovernmental cooperation to manage our mutual interdependence, economic, security, and environmental. That's an image of the agenda that's more consistent with strengthening nation states and strengthening the ability of governments to make good on their commitments to the middle class, to rebuild the working class opportunity structures. That's very big in the Biden administration. Think of people like Jake Sullivan, who has spent several years this past year is thinking about how you reconnect internationalism to to the middle class, to middle America, to ev- everyday people living everyday lives. What does internationalism mean to them? And it's got to mean a safer world that will allow them to make progress in their hu- household, in their communities.
0: But if we go back to where you started, John, which is sort of dealing with some of these huge problems like pandemics, global warming in particular... It'd be interesting to know how you see that intersecting with what you're saying. You take global warming, for instance. It's not super interested in regime type. Liberal democracies, in fact, tend to to emit somewhat less than illiberal regimes. So, if you just get the democracies to cut their their carbon emissions, it's not going to stop the rest of the planet from from frying. And at the same time, America's liberalism has not stopped a lot of people denying that climate change is is caused by humans or hasn't particularly encouraged a lot of people to give up on their SUVs and their, their sort of carbon intensive habits. There's also like big problems of distribution. I mean, if you look at the developing world, they'll say that Western countries have spent hundreds of years emitting carbon and destroying the planet. And that if we want to stop them from developing and from destructive way that and rapacious way that we have ourselves, then we should be willing to redistribute resources and to pay money towards them. That's not going to be universally popular with the, with the middle classes, particularly the voters who voted for for Donald Trump, many of whom work in sectors of the economy, which are a long way from carbon neutrality. So how do you reconcile those different goals, having more of a kind of club of democracies when you're trying to deal with problems which go beyond democracies? But also, how do you get the, the middle classes in the west on board, if uh, de- coming up with real solutions to global problems means probably redistributing quite a lot of asset of, of resources and technology to less well-off people in other places who are seen as stealing their jobs.
1: yeah, absolutely. this is a great question and and I think the the liberal democracies are going to have to navigate through these tensions. i, I on the one hand, We know historically that liberal democracies have an unusual capacity to work together and to associate their enlightened self-interest with a global order organized around rules and institutions that support progressive social purposes, full stop. That's something that we know the 19th and 20th century has told us. And so we don't want to lose that. We don't want to simply say, okay... Now we have to work with China and Russia and give up on those advantages and assets and investments that we've built around, around a kind of leadership group of democracies. So I, I don't think it's an either or. I think we've got to do that. Indeed, a, a more coherent, legitimate, healthy, thriving liberal order will provide a better framework to negotiate with China on global issues. If we were to live in a Trump world, we would find ourselves with very little leverage to bring China to the table on issues we care about. I think we have to do both, and doing one helps the other. And there are issues. We go into the international order as states to do lots of different things. We have to do them simultaneously. The international order has to help us solve security problems. We know that. International order has to help us manage interdependence. That's what we've been talking about, the problems of modernity. But international order also has to help us defend our polity principles, the values we care about. What do we want our grandchildren and great-grandchildren to have as life opportunities at the end of this this century? We want them to have uh, free institutions. Is that
0: not the problem, though? Many people in different countries around the world will say that's the one thing that the liberal international order didn't defend. It was about basically imposing Western preferences on on other players. And if you were serious about what you're saying, then China should be able to develop a completely different regime type to the West. And that it's kind of liberal imperialism to think that our system's better and to stack it in favor of a form of government just because we have it.
1: Are you saying that values such as rule of law, freedom of information and speech, freedom of religion, accountable government civil society outside the reach of a surveillance state are Western values and and don't have universal significance.
0: I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying that the particular package of values that have come about as a result of internal struggles over centuries in modernity in the West is quite contingent and quite an unusual mix. And that when other countries freed themselves from colonialism or imperialism and other things, they haven't always chosen exactly the same mix of countries after the Arab uprisings, for example in a lot of countries, they decided to have a more majoritarian system to not have necessarily the same principles around religion, women's rights, other issues. And they would say that that, that was their kind of sovereign choice. i frankly, um, enough of a product of my society to believe in the importance of individual rights and to have a much more individually focused worldview. As,
1: I agree with you. I, I'm not proposing that and don't think that liberal democracies have, have necessarily always performed well, and indeed have overextended themselves. And And indeed, if China prefers the regime it has, then we should pursue a mutual coexistence. I, I certainly think that the main point is to defend things we care about and leave it at that. And as you say, I think we have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. We have to be able to defend values and interests that we care about, but also operate globally with the knowledge that we're in it together. That we have to find ways to collectively solve problems of global warming and pandemic disease. So there's a lot of different things we have to do. And I do think that they are reconcilable. We we can do more than one thing. I have not asked you about the European Union, which is
0: a a bit of a failing for a podcast that thinks a lot about the EU thing. So maybe could just ask you one last question, which is where does the EU fit into the sort of future of liberal internationalism that you imagine? And to what extent is Biden's return to liberal internationalism and his idea of America coming back something which will be good for Europeans or or a challenge for, for Europeans?
1: Europe has been historically at the core of the liberal international order, a kind of quiet source of support and ballast for the broader international system. It's also shown the way to how liberal order operates collectively in its building of regional institutions that have their own life and that provide attractions to states inside and on the border of Europe to perform at a higher level, reinforcing civilian, military rule, rule of law, social democracy. These are all things that Europe as a subsystem has done and that radiates outward to the the larger system. So the success of Europe is essential for the success of a larger open rule-based system. I think there is a real opportunity for the United States and Europe to have a a new golden age of cooperation. I think it's there waiting to be negotiated. I think Europeans, you know better than I, would like an, Amer- an America that is performing at a higher level internationally, that is pursuing its enlightened interests, that sees a stronger Europe as consistent with, as opposed to inconsistent with, its own national interest and global ambitions. So I think if our leaders are so inclined, we're in for a, a good period. And it's going to be important both bilaterally across the Atlantic, but it's going to be important as we look outward to China, because we are going to be able to operate in a world where, with a rising and more powerful China if Europe and the United States are on the same page across the board. Okay,
0: well, we've run out of time. It's been fascinating talking to you, John. We've got one thing left to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Obviously, at the top of everyone's bookshelf, if they're self-respecting, will be A World Safe for Democracy, Liberal Internationalism, (laughs) and the Crises of Global Order, which is available from all good and probably some less good bookshops around the world. We'll put a link up to that on our page. But what else is on your bookshelf apart
1: from your book, John? Well, I'll mention two books. First of all, a series that I read, the, the Nigel Hamilton series on FDR and, and Churchill, the three volumes that are Churchill and Roosevelt at war. Extraordinary biography of these two leaders focusing on, on Roosevelt really and some of the differences that the United States and, and Britain had really at the moment of war on, on the conduct of the war. And of course, the vision of the post war system, wonderful set of books. And then as many people do during. <laughs> the pandemic, they go back and and rediscover books they loved and authors that they read when they were younger. Evelyn Waugh's Brideshead Revisited, rereading the great author and doing so partly because that period, the interwar period, when stories of young people who, many of whom were injured or killed in war and their societies rebuilding after the war and the intellectual and political stories that unfold as World War 1 marches to World War 2. So I'm utterly fascinated by our novels of uh, of that period and Evelyn Waugh is one of my favorites.
0: Okay, what a wonderfully sepia tinted <laughs> and nostalgic recommendation, John it's been wonderful talking to you we will put links up to all the publications that we mentioned including John's book on our website at ecfr.eu slash podcasts if you've enjoyed listening to us then please let other people know about it by writing about it on your social media feed or ours and above all by heading to Apple Podcasts or whatever app you've used to download this podcast and giving us a five star rating and a nice review but for now from John Eikenbury and myself Mark Leonard it's goodbye the researcher of ECFL's podcast is Lucy Halpenthal and our editor is Marlene Riedel